in a time where parents have the weight of a thousand decisions on their shoulders and every step is like walking in quicksand, adventure's probably not in your focus. However, research shows families who adventure are more resilient and have significantly healthier minds and bodies. The purpose of this podcast is to help families connect through simple and authentic adventure experiences. Welcome to Ordinary Sherpa, your online community designed to help you connect, reach your summit, and create meaningful adventure experiences with your family. Hello, and welcome to Ordinary Sherpa. I'm your host, Heidi Dusick. Happy to be back with you this week. And excited to share our topic today about being international teachers with kids. I'm, I'll be jumping into that episode here in a little bit, but I wanted to share some interesting stories. So I'm actually on Lake Placid today recording this with my son. I've talked a little bit about our experience with the U.S. Luge team and our interaction with the Olympic team. So it's so exciting to see a city that really embraces winter and like wraps their arm around it and just makes it the coolest experience ever. So if you ever get a chance to visit Lake Placid, Highly suggest it, especially for just a winter, a cool winter experience. Secondly, though, I was in a Facebook forum today and noticed someone share a post about they're they're in their 40s, they have a couple kids, they have all this money saved, and they're just not sure if they should take a break because their company's being bought out and take a lesser pay option, or if they should stick it out for a couple years, or if they should just take a break. And I was like, I wish I could articulate how understanding what is most important in your life and really sitting in the discomfort of society's expectations and benchmarks around what success looks like. I I think this episode actually will be a really great navigation tool for someone going through that of like, we think we want to do this, or we want to take a break, or we want to take a career break, we want to make a transition, but I'm paid really well. You know, I think all of those things, sometimes we get stuck in what the norm is. And stepping outside of our comfort zone in those places is really intriguing. I will say, I haven't been able to articulate and you're going to hear this over and over again, we are still in gap year. And it's been really hard for me to articulate what we have been processing because we're really trying to live in the moment, including podcast production. Like I just have not felt that I can put out a weekly podcast because I'm processing so much and it's deep thoughts of where we are and how this is impacting our family. But I do feel like this episode gives great credence to the types of things we are experiencing in our gap year as a family and really bringing us together and becoming more resilient. I don't know exactly what the next step is for us, but I do know that gap year will be coming to an end in April for us, or at least we believe that's what's happening at this point. (laughs) There's so much up in the air and so much transition that's taking place at the same time. So forgive me, I know podcast production has been relatively sporadic, but when I am in it, I am so in it. And I have several episodes coming up that I'm super excited to share with you. Everything from international travel as a family gap year, to moving abroad as a family, to building a business to support your lifestyle decisions. It's just been really interesting to have all these conversations and at the same point, try to stay in the moment and live in what our family has been embarking on for the past couple of years, knowing that it's coming to an end. So thank you for your patience in that. I do want to offer a tool. I've mentioned before the gap year, you know, part of the reason we got into gap year was the joy audit. So I have that tool available and I'll link that into show notes. But I also want to mention that I have a mini course that is 
in development stages. So I'm doing a pre-purchase option for the metrics of thriving. I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. So if either of these things or if this episode is resonating with you and you just need something to help you through the process, either of those tools might be really helpful. But I've also, you know, just reach out. I love having conversations. I love hearing from everyone. I've had a lot of fun interactions on our gap year, both staying with people, meeting up with people, or simply interacting with people who have come across the podcast and are interested in what we're doing. So either way, I would love to hear from you. With that, I would like to introduce David and Christine. David and Christine are international teachers, as you're going to hear, but that didn't that's not the beginning of their story. So I'm gonna let them walk through their story and how we met, which is very ironic. It's very random, quite honestly. And I guess it goes to show that the people that I have on this podcast, these are interesting people to me. They are not necessarily content creators. They're not someone that's rich and famous or that wrote a book. I think sometimes the relationships that I have built through this podcast have been much more meaningful because they're very authentic. They're very real and very ordinary. Uh, Hence the name Ordinary Sherpa. And I hope it gives you hope. Like there are people like this out there and you just have to find them and look for them. And it's amazing what can happen when those relationships flourish. So with that, David and Christine, welcome to Ordinary Sherpa. Thank you. We are so excited that we met you and your family as well. Thank you. Yeah, parking lot friends. I don't know that I, yeah, we should probably tell that story really quick. So quick, funny story. My husband, Brent, and David and his kids, we were all, they were all at a park one day, started playing, ended up the kids got along well. And by some circumstance, we ended up at the same place the next day, which was Denali State Park. Your children, my children to geocache, and we've now become parking lot friends. So yes. moral of the story is you can find your people. You just got to look for them. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your backstory. So Alaska, first and foremost, how did we kind of end up together there? What were you doing in Alaska and this summer, I should say? Uh, so tell a little bit about your backstory and, and you know how this summer came to be for you guys. Sure. So we were visiting Alaska um, because that's where David and I were both born and raised. So I grew up in a small town called Salcha and David grew up in Fairbanks. We teach internationally and we had been doing some traveling, but in the summertime, we always go back to Alaska and make sure that our kids keep that connection to home. So we were in Fairbanks thinking we should take a trip. And we jumped in the motorhome and went to Talkeetna. As we were, I was just retelling this story last night to some friends about just how weird these circumstances really were, but we left Talkeetna and we actually drove out of the town Mm -hmm. by a little bit. And then our son says, wait, they have that amazing playground. And, you know, you guys said we could go and we never went. So we turned around, went back into (laughs) Talkeetna to the playground. And then that's how we happened to meet your husband and your kids. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was so funny. That literally was like the day my husband came back to Alaska too. He had been home for a week with his family and it was like, I just need a day. Can you just take the kids and give me some mental break here? So I wasn't there. It was just kind of a fun circumstance on how we met. And our kids are like, hey, we we know those kids. And I was like, we don't know anyone, you guys. We're in Alaska. <laughs> like, we don't know. We have like our little bubble of family and friends, but no, we don't know them. They're like, no, we do. <laughs> really ironic. Very cool. So Alaska is home, um, but you've had quite a journey. You know, maybe you can take me back a little bit to what got you started in international teaching. Like, what was the spark or what was the thing? I'm assuming public school teaching beforehand. Maybe that's not where you started, correct? Yeah. Yeah. We, well, David started his teaching career in California. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I was in teaching in California right where I went to university. And I did as much as I want to do there, moved back home to Alaska, where things would be more affordable than California, if you can imagine. And I ended up at the same public school as Christine. We sort of did some of the same things around the same time while we're in high school. So it's kind of like we had a similar upbringing in a lot of ways. So we ended up at the same public school in Alaska. Yeah, I, I love that part of the story too, because when we were in high school, I had a crush on David, even though he went to a different high school, Aww. but we would see each other at, at sporting events. And he was a, a really big deal in our town for running. And so, you know, I'd see his picture in the paper and things like that. Man, that makes us sound so old, doesn't it? <laughs> his picture. No, I totally can relate. Yeah. I was teaching at the school that I went to that my parents, what my dad taught at, and my mom was an administrative secretary. So I had gone to the school and now I'm back teaching at it. And we had a science teacher that had to leave partway through the year. So we were getting this new science teacher and all of a sudden David showed up. It what, like a year later we were married or something, <laughs> a year and a half later? Or? Yeah, about a year later we were living together and and uh, yeah, and then we got married and, you know, we got married and we're continuing teaching at this public school in Ielson Air Force Base. It was a public school, but yet on military property. And we got a new librarian in and she had just come from Kuala Lumpur and she was an international librarian. So she says to David and me one day in the library, like, oh, have you ever thought about international teaching? Because they love to hire teaching couples. And at that point, we had a one-year-old, yeah, and uh, and a four-year-old. And she says, oh, this will be a great experience for the kids. And we're like, eh. So then she sends us this email. Hey, really, if you want to look into this or you want to ask any questions, and I'm like, delete. Because <laughs> I just... Like it wasn't something I could fathom, you know, my, even though I had traveled like a bit with David and we went to Australia for our honeymoon, like my world was still really small and having the kids, I just was like, nope, this is enough for me to think about. I don't want to think about that. But then he got, yeah, he got really hooked on it. Yeah. David, tell me like what your reaction was to that email. Well, I always had like a, a real you know, serious itch to like have my children have exposure living outside the U.S. I, I used to think of it as living, we live inside of a bubble in the U.S. And in Alaska, even more so, because you're so far removed from everything. It seems like everything's just so far away. 
And I was fortunate enough to do a lot of travel when I was younger. I even got to compete in a race over in China and a race in Hong Kong when I was about 14 or 15. So, you know, my eyes were really big and it just became really important to me to get my kids to have not a vacation overseas, mm-hmm. but to like live and experience an overseas life. Yeah. And maybe we lean into that just a little bit. What did you find or when you were thinking about what that experience would look like and how is vacation different from living overseas? Had you thought about like, what does that mean then? What would it look like to take our family overseas and not be on vacation, right? Like what were some Mm -hmm. of the things you were looking for as you explored this path a little bit further? You know, I wanted to see that there's an expression. I wanted them to see how does the other half live? You know, how do people in other countries truly live because we live in a very different lifestyle in the U.S. than virtually everywhere else in the world. I wanted them to see how, what the day-to-day lives or the day-to-day struggles of ordinary people in, you know, say a Latin American country or, um, the Caribbean, you know, in the Caribbean where we ended up. So I just wanted them to like have a real genuine understanding of that and not kind of a drive-by understanding. What ultimately happened for you guys to say, okay, I think I could see us doing this. You know, what was the process of the criteria maybe that you established for you to actually say yes to an opportunity outside of the U.S.? There's a placement agency that can connect you to about 600 international schools. And so you have a really detailed overview of each school. So then it's a matter of saying, is there a position that fits? You know, so I went down that path and I ended up having an interview with a school in Korea, interview with a school in Ethiopia. And then I landed an interview with a school in Jamaica and got to a second round that I'm like, these other places I've interviewed would be a stretch in a lot of ways, like distance away for travel and the number of time zones away and learning a new language. But Jamaica is just right there, 90 minute flight away from Florida, speak English. They drive on the other side of the road. That was a challenge. But, you know, otherwise that's a, that's a really soft landing, mm. you know? So that was a much easier sell than, you know, we're going to go to Cambodia or, you know, someplace South that's Korea, South Korea, that seems really far flung. And we just don't know very many people that have been to those places. Yeah. So you land in Jamaica, correct? Yeah. So we ended up at a school in Kingston, Jamaica, a really good sized school. And like a lot of international schools, it's pre-K through grade 12. Mm. So the whole school is pretty small, 300 kids. And we love the fact that all four of us get in the car in the morning and we all drive to the same place. Yes. That was so, that was was really nice. That was a big change. It was really nice. Yeah. Interesting. How did the kids react? So, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into moving your family abroad, right? So school and work is maybe just one of them. And it feels like, okay, kind of feel like we're checking some boxes or figuring that out. What about like social connection and just like community building and things of that? How did you guys adjust to just le- what life was like in these international, in Jamaica in particular? Um, well, our son was going into grade one. So he just had kindergarten here in the U.S. and some preschool in the U.S. And our, our daughter, I'll let you talk about her. You know, it was a actually a more difficult transition. She was still two years old and just turning three the summer that we left fortunately the you know the the schools that bring you on board they have a pretty big role in in helping you get settled they either give you a housing allowance or they will work with a realtor and go find you a place to live and so we ended up in a house with a little bit of space around it and some other comforts 
you know, help you find and buy a car and things like that. So some of those things are, you know, nicely accommodated, accommodated by the school, but in other ways, there's no one that can help you like going to the grocery store for the first time and trying to figure out like, okay, we're going to have to figure out what, how much of our diet and our lifestyle yeah. is going to change is things like that. You know, the expat community of teachers that is also at the school, they really help a lot. People just kind of have this, I remember what it was like to be new and therefore I will reach out. And so in that way, if the expat teachers also have kids, your kids become good friends, you know, but our children at that point were too young to really understand and therefore protest against moving. They knew we'd come back and see family at Christmas and they knew that we'd come back over the summer and and they were okay with that. You know, they had never been to the beach, like a warm beach, you know, and nice sand and the ocean and you know, all of that were were big draws. This most recent move and even before when we thought that we were going to be in Qingdao, China, you know, that that all became more difficult because as your kids get older and they get more rooted and they get more opinionated and their their world and their head is becoming more defined, you know, when you try to move them out of it, it's that's really hard. Mm-hmm. So it's very weird to say that at the same time that moving our children and our especially our daughter at such a young age even though it was really hard because our daughter was in a, a new place having to go to school how you know and she'd never done these things before and there was a lot of emotional support that I would have to give as a mom you know at the same time, that was one of our easiest moves because they were so little and you, you know, oh, sure. and it's easy to work them into things. And when you try to move preteens like we did this year, that's, that's much more difficult, even though it seemed like at the time it should be easier. Yeah. Interesting. So the transition, I can see that, right? So younger seems easier. And I think that's one thing, like when I think even just about travel. Travel with little kids it has like a lot of stuff, but they don't have a lot of opinions, right? Yes. <laughs> like there's there's more routines that you have to keep. It's just different, right? Whereas I think it's ironic that our gap year was actually determined by our oldest child who I thought we were going to wait until like a couple more years, right? And he pretty much said like if if you think I'm going to do this in high school, like you got another thing coming. And I was like, "Oh, I guess He's now in eighth grade. So I was like, well, I guess we're doing it now then because we don't have a lot of wiggle room on this timeline then. I think what you're pointing out, though, is just really that there's no like magic age where this is easier or harder. It's just different depending on the ages of your kids and where they are in their social network, where they are in, you know, developmentally. It's just it's just different. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for that. How was the first year? Like if you were to say on a scale of one to ten, Okay, we did this thing. It was crazy. It was bold. It was brave. And let's do it again. Like how how eager were you to sign up and say, yes, I loved it. I want to keep doing this. I want to go different places. Like where did you guys land after that first year? Our first year was hard for lots of different reasons. We were put in a house that 
was in this tiny neighborhood in in Kingston and the other people who lived in this neighborhood were all older and there were no kids. There wasn't like a neighborhood pool or, you know, a, a community pool or or anything like that. So, you know, the housing, when we look back at it now, like the housing was a bit uncomfortable. Everything was brand new. Our kids struggled with the heat. You know, our daughter had Zika. Our, I mean, so many things. And then year two becomes much easier. In year two, we were moved into a different house that was in this bigger neighborhood and there was a a pool and, you know, families, the, the neighborhood was also extremely international, you know, so some of the families were families that our kids went to school with and some were different and, you know, all the moms and dads would bring the kids to the pool and there was just much more uh, community built into that, you know, and we were kind of in the flow of things like getting used to the school. And and then we decided to leave because we had jobs back in our district in Alaska, and they had given us to, well, we had applied for a two-year leave of absence. And so we were trying to decide, you know, we would like to stay in Kingston, but at that point, we didn't know if we should give up jobs back in Alaska, you know, we thought, oh my gosh, do we want to give this up? You know, if we don't go back, we lose rights to our position. And, you know, of of course, like everybody's trying to chase that. I want to get to 20 years to get medical and, you know, things like that. And we were very much thinking along those same lines. So when we were given the option for a contract renewal in Kingston, we turned it down and we went back home. We often talk like, that's a life choice that we might reevaluate, like if we could go back in time. So then we landed back in Alaska, teaching in our same district for a couple of years. And we went back and forth like, okay, do we want to stay with these big salaries? Do we want to keep teaching in this district? Ultimately, we decided, no, we want to go back. Even though it was hard, we know that we can do these things and we now understand all the positives and all the rewards. So we decided to jump back into the international job market. Yeah. And David, how did that go? You know, we were chasing a a wonderful retirement package, but the whole Alaskan experience, as as optimal as it was, it was so perfect. Our kids would walk across the street to their school. I would walk nine minutes to the school that I went to as a kid. It was a wonderful experience. Everything about it was great, but we still just weren't satisfied. We really viewed ourselves as international teachers. And that's kind of where we belonged. We wanted to continue raising our kids outside the U.S., but having the best of both worlds and come back to Alaska. So I jumped back into the job search process. I tend to take the lead in those sorts of things because I, I love digging into the research and I loved like, hey, there's an opening here at this school for an English teacher and a science teacher. And, you know, and here's some amazing things I've learned about this country or that country. And at the time I was able to get the kids excited about that process. We'd watch a little YouTube channel called Geography Now, and it gives a 10-minute rundown of this country or that country. And it was just a perfect bite-sized piece of what's great about this part of the world. But we were also in the middle of COVID at the time. And so we took a big risk and it said, you know, Christine wants to go to 
Asia and just experience something completely different. We did something that was comfortable and a soft landing. Let's go somewhere completely different. I said, okay, we'll look at Asia. And in January of 2021, I was like, you know, eight months from now, the whole COVID thing is going to blow over. (laughs) It's going to be fine. We'll be in China and they've got a handle on it and so on and so forth. Oh man, as as the months went by, you flip on those calendar pages, we're like, oh my gosh, we might not actually get into China, you know, where our jobs are. To shorten that story just a little bit, you know, we had a contract with a school. Luckily, it was only a one-year commitment, and we never got into China. And we dutifully fulfilled our contract and taught our students remotely for an entire year. The thing we were all trying to, like, escape from in teaching, you know, we went right back into it and uh, had a whole whole year worth of it. But that that also kind of set you guys up because you were expecting to go to China, right? Like you had created a lifestyle back home to say like, okay, well, what about all the things that we were going to come back to not necessarily hang on to for this year in China? That took some creative problem solving as well, if I recall. Yeah, it, it really did because we knew that we didn't want to stay in Alaska over the winter. And we had already rented out our home. And so that's when we got a motor home. We bought it, I think, in September of 2022. No, September 2021. Yeah, 2021. yeah. September 2021. And we took a like a couple little camping trips in it. And then I remember being like, you know, we could live in this thing. You know, we don't have to be here. I mean, it was a very weird life that we were living in Alaska, Heidi, because our kids would like go to school during the day, but we didn't work during the day. And then we would work at night when our kids were home from school and staying with David's parents. So like our family was, you know, being broken up into this day thing. And then us being these nocturnal teachers. And it was so unpredictable. It was like every week we were finding out like, would we leave this week or would we leave next week? And then, so our kids were trying to like go to school here. And then we were also talking about, okay, when we do get to China, we're all going to have to live in a hotel room for three weeks while we quarantine, you know, what are we going to bring to do? So we were constantly talking about this future that we now know was never going to happen. And we started to see effects on our children and on ourselves. So we were like, hey, look, let's take this motor home and just get out of here. Like we have this really weird year. Let's just totally embrace it. Because if we're going to teach online with absolutely no possibility of ever being in person, we should really embrace it. So in October of 2021, we told the school please stop trying to get us in to China. Like we will complete our contract. We will work really hard for you, but we can't live in this. Will we go? Will we won't go? Will we won't go? (laughs) Will we not go? Um, So in early November of 2021, David and me and our dog got in the motorhome and drove from Fairbanks to 
Montana. Montana. The roads were were bad in some spots where like at the beginning of winter, you know, it'll snow and then it'll melt a little bit and freeze. And so we had these icy roads and we're driving through snowstorms and you know, we'd, we'd stop somewhere. And do you remember the back of our motor home would be covered with like a six inch or eight mm-hmm. inch crust of snow mm-hmm. and ice. So our kids had flown down to Montana with David's parents. And we spent Thanksgiving in Montana, surrounded by David's part of the family. And then we took off and we went down the West Coast with the idea that by Christmas, we were going to be in Apache Junction, Arizona, because my dad lives there and my sister lives in Tucson. So we were going to spend Christmas with that part of our family. And that was really our only plan. Like once we landed in Apache Junction, we spent maybe like a a week there and we were trying to figure out what do we do next? You know, where do we go? And my dad and his girlfriend said, you know, have you ever tried this place called Puerto Penasco in Mexico? We were like, no, let's go. So we ended up, this was to me like, One of the coolest memories from that trip was we lived on the beach in Mexico for about seven weeks and, you know, we would teach at night and we could hang out on the beach during the day and, and we'd meet other people who were also unschooling their children. And because our kids were in no kind of formal education at that point or like structured education. So, you know, we do all these like amazing things and take them to amazing places. And we ended up driving down in, this is uh, early February of 2022. We're driving down the Baja Peninsula in Mexico and we end up at this place called Guero Negro, where people go to watch the blue whales. They come in, the blue whales give birth. You can like, you know, we, we parked our motorhome on the edge of the ocean in this completely like desolate remote spot. And we could hear the whales and see the whales. And then we got on this little tiny boat and we went out and, you know, we could touch a whale. and. It was then that I started to realize that they originate from Alaska. We were following their same migration pattern. And I just really thought about how we were connecting to the natural world and how, you know, the blue whales are coming down here into like warmer waters and giving birth to like give their kids this amazing opportunity as like whale children. And and here we're doing the same thing. From there, we just decided we need to embrace this all the way. And it became overwhelming to try to figure out where to go next because there's so many places Mm -hmm. to go, you know, but we knew that we had to leave Mexico because finding quality internet was getting really, really difficult and expensive. So we went back into the U.S. We traveled east and we went all the way to Washington, D.C. And then south all the way down into Mississippi. And then we cut back through the central part of the U.S. and ended up back in the the Spokane, Washington area again. And it was 18,000 miles 
we decided to just chase not only the places we wanted to see, but the people we wanted to reconnect with. David and I went back to our universities and visited the campuses. One of my former teachers who really had such an impact on my life, we got to see her again and I got to teach a class with her, you know, and we met former students who now had families. Our kids played with the kids of our former students. And we chased friends that we had had. And we read about things in books or whatever our kids were studying and was like, okay, we're going to just go there and learn more about that. I love that. David is probably like, hey, Christine, you're painting a pretty rosy picture, <laughs> you know, because we still had to like, how are we going to drive this far? What is this going to cost us in gas? What do you, you know? Yeah. So David can talk more about the practical part. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were still tied to the extremely interesting work we had to do with, these, with our students in China and our co-teachers over there. You know, so we knew every Tuesday and Thursday, sorry, Sunday, Tuesday and Thursday, we had to be ready to teach. We had to be like, find the best closest parking spot to the, you know, cell phone towers for the companies that we happen to subscribe to. So we're always like following a map of cell phone towers and then looking at our, <laughs> at our data rates or hoping that we could get to a place that had, you know, good free Wi-Fi, which is not always, you know, what <laughs> Starbucks wants to give you, uh, even if they say that right on the door, you know, so we just put ourselves in just so many like weird positions, you know, and got occasional knocks on the doors like, yeah, you can't park this motorhome right here, you know, <laughs> eight feet away from the wall of this, you know, coffee shop to use our Wi-Fi from, you know, seven p.m. until ten p.m. or or whatever it was. So we're just doing kinds all kinds of odd things just to kind of make it work and keep keep the adventure going. I learned from a gentleman uh, that we bumped into this past summer that a lot of stuff we were doing was called Type Two Fun, where it's fun afterwards. <laughs> 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 at the time, just right? like struggle, you know, all these little tiny struggles and challenges. Then we just like overcoming it in a, a new version of how do we conduct class today? You know, how do I bring in this experience yeah. we just had at this museum and try to relate that to what we're studying to these kids on the other side of the world? Yeah. You know, so it's, it's just a, right. a really bizarre way to live in a lot of respects but it produced a lot of really funny and interesting stories. That's for sure. Yeah. And those stories, we kind of joke because in the moment they're not funny, right? At the same time, <laughs> you're like, I mean, we may have had a couple of those experiences together. Like your internet's going out again and you're in the middle of something or something less than ideal happens. I keep joking. I, I say like, I had this like fear list of everything before we launched on our, on our gap year in the RV of what could possibly go wrong, right? This entire list of things. And I can honestly say every single one of those things has now happened, right? Like, And we're still here yeah. to talk about it, but it was not funny at the time. It was not like, oh, we're going to like think this is a great story later. I was like, just get me through this day and tomorrow. Although at the same time, I will say, having thought about those fears in advance in the moment, I was like, this isn't as bad as it could have been, right? Like I remember the first time we blew a tire on the interstate, we were all like, I wonder what my husband's like stress level is on his watch right now. Like that's kind of a joke. Like dad, check your watch and see what your stress level's at. Maybe, and we'll, we'll decide if we want to have this conversation now or later. So it's just kind of funny when you talk about like type two fun and as glorious and magical as Christine made it sound, the reality of this is also still really hard and interesting and really hard to process and explain. Like there's so many things people are like, so what's your favorite 
trip part of the trip. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like <laughs> I can't even begin to adequately put into words what this experience is like. And I'm sure you guys have similar yes. stories, right? Where it's like, where do I start? What country? What time of our life? What random yeah. story are you most interested in? Because so much happens in these experiences. That's it's really hard to process. It is. And it's people have a an Instagram idea of what living in a motor home is like, you know, and and especially because we we would never really come up with a plan that took us more than one to three days into the future. You know, there's a, a great deal of every day that just comes into, okay, let's plan. You know, David's just like Brent's checking his stress level on his watch. David is checking internet connections mm -hmm. in places and like, where is our next gas station and what's going to have the cheapest gas? Because mm -hmm. also the war in Ukraine started when yep. we were out on our trip and, you know, gas prices all of a sudden, like we didn't budget for what they became. You know, the other thing that I, that I wanted to bring up is like at the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about taking our children out of the U.S. to break the bubble that they were living in. And I don't think I've ever really processed this idea until right now, but living in the motor home and especially living an opposite schedule to what most everyone around you was living allowed us to see this completely other side of our own country. You know, our kids got to understand different types of jobs and the way that people make money or have to make ends meet. I mean, when you travel around in a motorhome and you meet all the other people who are doing the same thing, you know, some people are doing it out of privilege and fun or type two fun, you know, and some people are doing it because that's how they live, you know? And so mm -hmm. our kids talked to so many different types of people from different walks of life. And that in itself also broke the bubble and the view that they had of their own country. But even like, as soon as you just work a schedule that's opposite to everybody else, you realize, oh my goodness, there's all these other things that I've never seen or thought about or participated in because I've always been at work at this time, or I've had to sleep at this time to be at work in the morning. That in itself really changes your perspective. But I, is it okay if we move into how we ended up in Guatemala? Oh, please. Yes. We came to visit you the week you were leaving. And so there's a whole nother chapter to the story that I don't even know about yet. Let's yeah. go there. Uh, talk a little bit about Guatemala and what's, and even to like what's happening now in Guatemala, because I know that's. Yeah, I was just going to say on the, on the timeline, but we were living in our motorhome and I didn't expect to restart the job shopping process, mm. you know, one year later after I'd done, you know, because the, for me, the job shopping process was a solid three months. And then I got to do that all over again. The following year, I didn't expect to do that for several years. And so that started again, another round of interviews from the motorhome, you know, again, trying In to November find of 2021. Yeah. 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 And so for US based teachers, the job shopping process really begins in October and you want to have something nailed down by December, mm. you know, so it's a whole different timeline because these schools need to have, they plan so far out in advance. They need to have all of their hiring, all their staffing sorted out by January for that August opening of the school. 
Interesting. Well, yeah. And on top of the logistics of, I tell people like every day is an adventure and I'm not joking because like, I don't even know where we're going to get groceries today or where we're doing our laundry this week, you know? So the things that become very comfortable in your home environment, like everything of your life is uprooted every couple days, maybe every couple weeks if you slow travel. But you know, when you're doing that on top of like these big life things, like finding a new job for the future, that, that can become really taxing too. Yeah. We were working our jobs in China at night. And then during the day we'd have, you know, David would do interviews and things like that on top of whatever we were doing in unschooling or planning, or, you know, when you bring up laundry, Heidi, that was one of my favorite parts was having to go to laundry mats or, and use like public showers and things. It just made me realize I've always grown up in a, well, almost always grown up in a house with a washer and a dryer and, you know, and, and even just the idea that you can do all of that in your own house limits you from meeting people that you'd never meet. Like when you go to the laundromat, oh, yeah. yeah, we'd teach sometimes that that had the best Wi-Fi, So we'd be doing our laundry and teaching our classes in China. And my students can see, you know, people carrying laundry baskets behind me and stuff. They're like, miss, where are you? So we're doing these interviews and stuff from the motorhome and the school here in Guate, Colegio Maya says, hey, we want to connect you with some teachers here. What David was explaining, you know, they're very good at trying to build you a community before you even show up. They say, we think that you should reach out to this certain person. And so David's like, oh, hey, we're going to Zoom with this person. And I was like, I pull up a picture of her. This person and I met in 1995 and we played collegiate soccer together in university and we knew each other for about a year and a half and she had come to Fairbanks to run like a marathon but then we had totally lost contact with each other and all of a sudden we're on zoom and like we see each other's faces we're like oh my gosh um I mean, that was quite the experience, you know, and then for me to realize, wait a minute, you know, when we went to Kingston, we didn't know anybody. And now when we go to Guate, we will at least have this one person we know. And then to find out that we actually live in the same neighborhood as them, (laughs) the school had a house like Mm. in that neighborhood. And so now our kids are friends with her. So we get these jobs in Guatemala and we wanted to be, all of this is still when we're living in the motor home and we wanted to be back in Fairbanks by May for our son's birthday. We were like, okay, now that we're back here, how do we repack? Because we had packed bags for China, which now we didn't need some of those things. I mean, we were packing to be in a hotel quarantine for three weeks and all these other things. And so we were repacking and like redoing things. And and we had only been back in Fairbanks for May and June because we met you all around July in Talkeetna, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I remember it being around like July 4th ish or Mm -hmm. something. So yeah, we had like, okay, we've done this packing. We've been around home. Like let's go take another trip. And that's how we ended up being parking lot friends. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. And then we came up to, so we met in Talkeetna. 
we ended up, I think, going down to the Kenai, went to Kotzebue, which was crazy, and then came back and we're like, well, now where do we go? Like, we have this whole interior loop and you being in Fairbanks, it was a great meetup because it's always fun to find people who have kids. It's also, I think, finding your people is always kind of interesting. Like you mentioned, it's so ironic sometimes. I think you know, much like your friend, your collegiate soccer friend, like sometimes it's just like it shows up right when you need it. Right. And there was a time we were going through some interesting stuff too. And it was like, no, we just, I think we need this. Like we're going to go to Fairbanks, even if it wasn't on our way, because I think we just need this. And you start to read what your kids need. And so for us, it was, it was a blessing. I know it was kind of crazy though, because you were like pulling together people all the time. Like this is our last week. This is like our last hurrah, right? I know we haven't really been in touch since you've been in Guatemala. Can you tell me a little bit about like now this is your third kind of international teaching assignment? Having looked back, how is this one different than the last? I mean, China obviously was kind of like an oddball, but in comparison to the work in Kingston, how would you compare this, the Guada experience to that of Jamaica? I put together a real big spreadsheet when I shopped for schools to try to narrow down our choices and it was important to me that we ended up at a school of a certain size mm. and a certain student makeup. It was just kind of important to me that we ended up at a school that's about 50% international students and about 50% local students. So as you can imagine, our students that have exposure to more local kids, more local culture and the language, of course, because there's a lot of schools out there that are about 90% local kids and 10% expats or some ratio like that. And I wanted to be at a school that was kind of a medium size. And again, we're at a school about 300 kids through pre-K through 12. So it's a relatively small-ish community. And it, it really offers a lot. It just offers a great deal that you can't find in your you know, usual U.S. public school. Super difficult first year, mm. no doubt about it. You're teaching, you know, I've been teaching science for 20 years, thereabouts. But, you know, you're teaching some new curriculum and teaching new kids, a new school culture, a new principal, new everything, new colleagues, super difficult first year and getting the kids adjusted. And we also need to throw in like, you know, at this time we were done with COVID, but COVID wasn't done with us. Mm. And it turns out that we were supposed to land here like on the 4th of August and they had to delay us a whole week later. And so we showed up just four days before we had to walk in front of our new students and, you know, start teaching in a new school, Yeah, you know, along with, you know, getting settled into a new house and just finding your way to work. And, you know, in this new vehicle that we bought um, sight unseen, you know, just navigating to your actual workspace, like it was ridiculous, you know, the stuff we had to do in those first four days. But again, after the first year, you know, everything is just a hundred percent easier all the way around. For me, last year was my first year back to full-time teaching since 2010. Landing four days before school started and, and, and knowing, too, the other hard part about this move was that, you know, our son didn't want to go, you know, and our daughter was kind of back and forth about it. And when I look back, I don't blame them at all. You know, we're like, hey, we're going to go to China. You need to learn Mandarin. And, you know, and like they're starting on that. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, we're going to live in a motorhome and drive around. And then, oh, wait, no, now we're going to go to Guatemala and you need to learn Spanish. And they're just being thrown all around too. The thing that made last year 
successful, even though it was really difficult, was the fact that we had built such a strong foundation as a family. Our kids already knew what it was like to be dropped into a place where most people don't look like you, you know, have different accents than you. Or, And so, you know, they could kind of think back to their strengths on that. But also, you know, when you live in a 30 foot classy motor home, you know, you just, you have to have this new respect for each other. You know, there's a level of empathy that your family as a whole has to build or what you're doing is going to be awful, you know? And so we just had to really sit down and think like, okay, what matters? You know, there's so many new things being thrown at you that, and you can't do everything well, and you can't focus on everything. So what is it that's going to matter? And it also makes you reevaluate the way that you even answer that question. Because once you've been a member of so many different types of systems, not just school systems, but like political systems or cultural systems or, you know, anything, you know, each one of those systems tells you like, okay, this is the standard you're striving for and you need this. And, and so you learn that even though you are people within these systems, you can also evaluate what actually goes on the top. Yes. So maybe we decide we don't care about our kids' grades this year. You know, even though everyone around you says, this is school, you have to have good grades, you have to do all your work, you have to, like, we are just going to give them time to start feeling safe in their environment, you know, and comfortable and confident in their environment, you know, and you have to, that in itself takes time and energy. But I think if you don't do that and you just try to chase everything that everybody tells you you should do, then that's also really damaging and exhausting. Yeah. There's something I want to touch on that a little bit before I come to you, David, I'd like your perspective on this too. But one of the things you said about just being in proximity to each other, like it feels what you have experienced has kind of taken the mask off of ordinary life. Like some of the things that we were wearing just to survive in life, I didn't even know we were wearing them until, you know, like you said, you're in a 30 foot, well, ours is 32. And I don't think that two feet really matters when it comes to like space and respect and trust and empathy building. Because what matters, the other thing I've learned is much like you kind of alluded to in the RV space, like we have exposure to homeless families regularly and like the level of empathy we're building with what family looks like across our own nation. And you start to learn like every single system that we've been in, there's like different rules to the game. We just went through the process of finding healthcare and like understanding public healthcare systems. Even though we aren't applying for that, we have to go through that system in order to determine that we're not eligible so that we can buy in the market. You know, it's just like these crazy yeah. things that you're starting to learn. We have so many assumptions sometimes just living in a normal life that we're comfortable with. And we don't always see those blind spots until we're dumped into a new, not dumped, like I chose, right? So until we choose to explore a new system or a new way of living, a new lifestyle. And I think that's the one of those key pieces that I just can't articulate, right? I can't ever explain what it's like to be living in a place where I am the minority, which I'm not saying I'm a minority. I come with a lot of privilege and I understand that. But coming into a system where people don't look like me, 
or talk like me or, you know, have the same experiences I have. Like, it's just, it gives me whole new respect and empathy for the types of things that are happening outside of our system and learning to appreciate those as well in in just like a different light. So can I jump in on that? And I think too, I mean, this is what I teach in English is, you know, how the stories that surround us, you know, shape our view and our perspective of what's good or bad or what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and what success looks like and what, you know, once you put yourself in a different system where, where stories are different, what you said really struck me because you get a whole new appreciation of how many different types of people live life and find success and happiness within life. And so, you know, it's all about, what is it that you choose to prioritize and like really, really want for your children? So like international schools offer a fantastic education. At the same time, we're not in it because I want that fantastic education so that my kids can go to Yale or something like that. We are in it because we want them to see all these different stories and get these different perspectives because in the end, like, I'm so proud of who our children are because of the level of empathy that they have for other people, because of their larger awareness of the world and what that does for their own self-reflection and deciding, like, who do I want to be as a person? And it's something that's really, really hard to achieve, I think, when you're always in the same place within the same system, because you don't get the time to grapple with this new thing that you didn't know or didn't understand, right? You know, it's now right in front of you and you're living a part of it. David, I want to come back to you having now been in Guatemala. This is in your second year now in Guatemala, correct? Feeling a little better? Like, are you feeling a little more settled or is it easier? Feels subjective here, but is it easier in year two in Guatemala for you guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I just wanted to say I'm glad you circled back to like you know the kind of resilience that our families have built up through mm-hmm. these experiences. And you say you're not articulating it very well, but I think you are both articulating it very well to say they've some real personal strengths and assets that they can carry with them. Sometimes you don't realize those were growing until much later. Yeah, and they they appear. You know, they present themselves like, oh, you handled this new thing so well because of how we've lived for the past six months, the last two years or whatever. The second year is much easier just knowing all of the systems that you're in and and reteaching the same classes for the second year for the most part. This isn't a pitch to try to sell international teaching, but compared to teaching in public schools in the U.S., they do smooth out a lot of things that U.S. public school teachers always struggle with. One example is that we have an eight classes, but I only teach five of those. That means I have three prep periods. So 80 minutes of prep one day and two times 80 minutes the other day as we alternate between days. So they really give you the time and the space to do all the planning and preparation that you would want to do. So it's a huge selling point along with other things like all going to the same school at the same time, you know, and having the, being the same place and not like racing off to pick up this kid or racing over there to pick up this kid at a certain time. So it's, it's a family affair. So we're really leveraging that and making the most of it by getting involved in extracurriculars. And I got back into coaching track and field again, which I couldn't have handled last year Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a big time commitment, any kind of extracurricular you do. 
you know, so we're getting even more invested in our school community and the communities we've started to learn about outside of the school. That is such a good point, the idea of community. There's many things that make year two easier than year one, especially because year two, we were here 10 days before school started, you know, I'm like, whoa, that's a lot. This is like a lifetime. Yes, yes. But also community was something that people really missed during quarantine and lockdowns. And so we were missing that. And then we jumped into the motor home and, you know, you're parts of little tiny communities, but as far as like, you know, those core people around you, you know, you've separated yourself from them. And then we weren't really totally part of the community in Qingdao because we, I mean, we never went to a staff meeting because they'd be at like four o'clock in the morning for us at the end of our teaching day. And, you know, we would just be like, nope, we'll get this information through email, you know. So, you know, we didn't have that camaraderie and community. And then the first year here, you're building all that. So knowing this year that, yes, like these are the friends, like these are the mentors, these are the people that I look up to and I know exactly who I can go to now. And our kids, you know, it's like for the first time we're repeating something instead of like jumping (laughs) into something brand new every year. And I just that in itself, the familiarity of it feels really comfortable. Yeah. Well, I applaud you guys for what you're doing. I think part of what I was hoping, I think when I started Ordinary Sherpa was to let families know that there is another way, right? To start to reveal, expose. You have options other than just status quo life in the United States. And I have listeners from all over the world. So I don't want to suggest that this is only a, a Western culture thing or just a United States thing. That it's very easy to fall into this is what our life looks like. And this is, I just got to like suck it up and do the thing, right? I want to encourage people to explore the thing that's scary and bold. As we kind of transition to the end here today, I just thank you so much both for like sharing your story and being so raw and vulnerable with like just honest conversation about what life is like. It's easy to look online and only see the highlight reels. So as we walk away from this conversation, anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to leave my listeners with or a final story maybe that you wanted to share that you think would be helpful? Two little things. I I guess I would say there's a big yes, but that I think listeners might be having when they hear this and they think like, well, yes, but what about retirement and healthcare? I think part of this pivot we've made over the last five or six years is that, you know, maybe we don't retire in the U.S. Maybe Mm -hmm. we visit the U.S. for extended periods, see all the people we want to see, but then we go to a retirement somewhere that we've lived or visited for extended periods of time. Maybe it's a Costa Rica, maybe it's a Mexico or something like that. And so that's kind of the big pivot that we've made that that might help answer that. Yes, but Mm -hmm. what about this issue. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I feel like there's another whole episode here. (laughs) Do you have any tools? You mentioned a couple of websites. Do you want to just offer up any of those tools that you used when you were doing your research, just like as a starting point, if anyone was interested, David? It helps to go through an agency when you're a placement agency. The biggest one is probably Search Associates. And there's also a couple of regional ones. The one for Central and South America schools is called AMISA, A-M-I-S-A. Awesome. 
I'll include that then in the show notes. So if people wanted to take the next step and at least explore this, my husband and I both came from public teaching backgrounds too. So again, didn't know this was an option until more recently, and I'm really excited to hear about it. Christine, any final thoughts from you as we close out the show or things you'd like to leave my listeners with? Yeah, I want to go back to this idea of like, yes, but, and I, I think you have to retrain your mind for yes and. Doing something like this really involves being able to open up your heart or your thinking process to the idea that two things can be and are equally true at the same time. And that's not only true about your perception of the travel or where you might go and the rewards versus the downsides. I think it's also important to apply that yes and thinking to your life that you're currently living and what's around you. Like, yes, this is comfortable. And my kids are getting this sort of messaging through the life that we live, you know? Yes, we have these great paychecks and, you know, this part. So Mm -hmm. it's easy to say that something is nice and it's good when it's comfortable, but really digging into like why something is comfortable and what you may be missing because you're so stuck in your comfort, I think that's a really important thing to to think about as well when you're trying to decide whether or not you want to leave this comfortable life and explore something that could be more struggle. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time again to tell your story for me. Thank you for having this show. You know, I, as we were sitting here talking to you, I was like, When we first started this journey in like 2014 and 15, having access to a show like this and listening, we were already going to make the decision to go, but listening to other people's stories about like, yeah, I tried that. It's really hard. And these other things come out of it. You know, I, I just love that you're giving people the opportunity to learn from all these different ways that we can experience life that it's so cool. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm glad that people are finding value from it. So in the end, that was what it was all about. It's been as rewarding for me, right? Because I'm learning. Every time I interview someone, I learn as like just so much. So I'm so happy that I can share these really awesome conversations with a broader audience. But I appreciate you saying that. And that is a wrap for this conversation. I was so excited to have this conversation. I know it's a little bit long for an episode of mine, but thanks for sticking with us. I have 14 key takeaways from this episode. Number one, you can find your people, you just have to look for them, even if it's in a parking lot. Number two, not all adventures in your lifetime will be planned or obvious next steps. As Christine stated, she immediately deleted the email, initially telling them about international teaching. For David, it was an opportunity to explore an underlying desire to have a deep experience in a different country. International teaching could be a door into that experience, not just a drive-by experience of a vacation, but more immersive day-to-day life in another country. Number three, what are the daily lives and daily struggles of ordinary people in other countries similar or different than America? It was that curiosity that drove David to dive deeper into other countries that they might live and work as a family. Number four, the criteria used to establish which countries and schools made the most sense for their family included the amount of travel distance, the time zone they would be living in, and primary language spoken. 
This filtered their results down to South and Central America along with the Caribbean. They felt these criteria allowed for a soft landing for a first-time experience as opposed to being in other spots in the world. Number five, international schools have a large role in taking responsibility to help settle a family in. However, some things like your first visit to the grocery store are a little different. The expat teaching community was a great resource in the transition as well. Number six, easy and hard are relative terms. There is no right age to adventure with kids. Each stage offers a different opportunity and challenges. Number seven, following their two-year leave of absence in Alaska, they came back to what they thought was an ideal experience, only to realize they now identified as international teachers and were much more aligned with that over the Alaskan experience. Number eight, having to teach online at night due to the difference in time zones in China, they realized they had a really weird life. Eventually, they embraced the weird and decided to live in an RV and travel North America. They followed the blue whale migration unintentionally to Baja, California, east to Washington, D.C., south to Mississippi, across to Spokane, Washington, putting on over 18,000 miles to not only see destinations, but also the people they wanted to reconnect with. Number nine, I empathize with her comment that when you have location and time freedom to go anywhere, it's really overwhelming to figure out where to go because there's just so many amazing places. Number 10, sometimes you realize after the adventure over that that was classified as type two fun, where it's fun after the fact, but in the moment it's hard. Looking back, it produced a lot of fun and interesting stories and also just the simple realization that we did that. Number 11, People may have an Instagram version of what it means to live in a motorhome, but there are many more variables that are difficult to process or adequately put into words to help others understand the intricacies of our life. Living in a motorhome, especially on opposite schedule to what everyone else was living, allowed them to see a completely different version of their own country. Number 12, the thing that made the transition to Guatemala successful, even though it was incredibly hard, was that they had built a strong foundation as a family, following years abroad in Jamaica and the time in the motorhome. There's a level of empathy that your family builds living in a small space. Number 13, sitting down and defining what really matters in the midst of everything being thrown at you was a critical step in moving forward. Once you have been a member of so many different types of systems and you are exposed to different benchmarks, you get to evaluate what goes on top. Being comfortable in one system creates blind spots and assumptions to others' perspectives and experiences. Number 14, David challenges us to think about the yes, but scenarios, like the barrier of retirement and healthcare. What if you didn't retire in the United States? Additionally, Christine leaves us with the thought of yes and thinking, allowing two things to be true simultaneously. It's easy to think something is good and easy when it's comfortable. Challenge yourself through why something is comfortable and what you are missing because you're stuck in your comfort. It's really easy to consider when thinking about a more adventurous path. I hope you found this conversation valuable. I love that Christine and David are just very ordinary people, much like my husband and I and our family. They did offer some resources, so I'm putting additional resources in the show notes, both placement agencies and some of the resources that they used in you know, choosing the countries that they were traveling to. But as I alluded to in the introduction, 
I think there's so many things that get us stuck in a very comfortable lifestyle, as Christine puts it. And so I do want to offer up the resource again, if you're interested in pre-purchasing or getting it on the list for uh, Metrics of Thriving. It's a, it's a simple mini course that can walk you through, you know, what does thriving look like for our family and not simply using the systems or the su- society's culture norms of what is success look like for you. So Metrics of Thriving or the Joy Audit can be a really holistic approach to designing a lifestyle that fits you and your family in the most meaningful way possible. Thank you so much for joining us on this adventure and following the adventures of Christine and David. And until next week, keep on adventuring. If you found value from today's show, here are three easy ways you can support us. Subscribe to Ordinary Sherpa Podcast on the platform you're listening to. It lets the providers know that you're getting value from the show and want to be around when we release additional content. If you feel compelled, leave us a review. Two, find your friends, family, and others you think would enjoy this show and share this episode. Three, and most importantly, join the community of families interested in creating authentic experiences through simple adventures by going to OrdinarySherpa.com backslash community. We want to hear from you and create content that would benefit your family. Thanks for joining us on this journey as we help families connect through adventure.